Hello and welcome back to The Witness Podcast. My name is Jack and I'm this year's Editor-in-Chief. The Witness is the University of Exeter's student-led academic politics journal in affiliation with Politics Society. We publish regular articles written by our academic community on our website thewitnessexeter.com. We started this podcast in 2021 to add a fresh medium for the exchange of ideas. It is a space for academics, students and local activists come and talk about ideas that they believe are worth sharing. Over our brief hiatus that stretched over the exam period, next year's editor of the journal was elected. Next year's editor, Jess Mahon, will begin her stint in September. I'm really happy to leave the journal in her capable hands. This episode of the podcast, I sat down with Dr. Charles Maskelier, Professor of Sociology here at the University of Exeter. We discussed his upcoming book and intellectual projects concerning his theory of an intersectional socialist utopianism. We discussed what it means to be a libertarian socialist and Charles's suggestion that applying intersectionality and utopianism to a libertarian socialist framework may better remedy the crises the world faces today. The transcript of the talk referenced in the podcast is available at witnessexeter.com under podcasts. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the seventh installment of the Witness podcast. My name is Jack and today I have with me Dr. Charles Maskelia. Charles, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, so we'll just go ahead with a quick introduction. Charles, you just want to quickly explain um, your role at the university, uh, your research, and what you maybe are coming on here to talk about today. Yes, so um, I'm in the sociology department, um, well, in the sociology, philosophy, anthropology department, otherwise known as SPA, um, but don't let that fool you. Um, now, I, in there, I'm director of um, sociology programs, um, and I teach a range of modules uh, from core to more optional modules. Um, including one called Contemporary Capitalism, Critique and Resistance. Um, now, that particular module was based on a book that I published in 2017 on um, critique in a neoliberal age. Um, and I am now working a little bit more on, well, the other side of this. So I developed and formulated a critique. And I'm trying to work a little bit more on um, alternative to capitalism or on a, on a, on a utopia. Um, what I call an intersectional um, socialist utopia in some ways. Um, so broadly speaking, my work is really in critical theory, but also in, in theorizing and conceptualizing um, socialism um, or alternatives to capitalism. Um, so for that reason, I kind of um, um, do a bit of research also, of course, on, on utopianism. Great. So we'll get into talking about socialism in a moment, but um, briefly, the talk that you sent me um, in preparation for this was in lead up to a book project you've got going on. Would you like to explain that a little bit? Maybe the topic of the book and the ideas expressed? Yeah, yeah. So um, so it's I've just finished actually today, uh, well, the first draft of chapter four. The book um, is provisionally called um, Intersectional Socialism. I don't know if it's good going to end up being called intersectionality as um, critique and utopia. Um, but what it does is to try and kind of in some ways, um, I don't know if the word revive is the right one, but at least um, reformulate 
um, socialism in the light of um, recent developments, but also in the light of um, theoretical developments, but also research that has been done in the social sciences. So what I am to do is to bring together different knowledge projects, to bring them into dialogue with one another. What's been happening with socialism um, really uh, is a, a sort of project of, um, let's just say, rejection and um, of discrediting a particular ideology throughout the years. And I think the really existing socialism period, which wasn't really necessarily what many people had in mind when they thought of socialism initially, and by that I mean the experiences of the Soviet Union, of China, of Cuba, um, all of these serve to discredit in some ways socialism because of the emphasis on equality without the emphasis really on freedom, uh, without combining you know, equality with freedom. Um, there, were, there, is, there has been more recently, and has been throughout the years as well, but especially more recently, a sort of attack on socialism for failing to really grapple with issues that are extra economic, right? So what we end up um, seeing quite a lot is the charge of economic, economic reductionism, really, in, in relation to socialism. The fact that socialism only tackles really economic issues or, or can only successfully address those issues. So I asked the question, what would a socialism that addresses those issues um, look like? But what does a socialism that addresses those issues by bringing into dialogue different knowledge projects that are not strictly socialist, but that are in some ways critical of the st status quo? Um, what, what would that entail? Um, and I ended up as through my work on social critique, on the critique of capitalism, um, exploring in quite some depth um, intersectionality, and especially the works that are referred to as that explicitly referring themselves as works of intersectionality theory or intersectionality studies, and those that could be regarded as works of intersectionality. And by intersectionality, I mean I mean you know, and there's many definitions one could give, but at least the recognition that there are different forms of oppression and structures of oppression intersecting with one another, right? It's not just, for example, class that one ought to look at, but also class in relation to race, potentially also gender. But I even include, because it's often excluded from the intersectional lens or framework, the environment. Um, so, so what does it mean to look at domination in relation to um, cultural issues, economic issues, but also environmental issues. How can we bring the, the, the knowledge projects, the forms of resistance at each of the sites of oppression and struggle into dialogue with one another, to think of socialism anew in, in a different way? Um, and I did that and I started thinking about it and it, came quite, it became quite clear that um, my interest in libertarian socialism, which we might discuss, which we will, I'm sure, discuss uh, quite soon, my interest in libertarian socialism, well, um, could play a role in trying to understand a little bit more what that alternative could look like, what that utopia, socialist utopia could look like. Um, the more I read about those projects, the more I saw um, critics of, for example, the state, critics of uh, the economy, that shared an, an affinity with some of the 
libertarian socialist approaches that I was familiar with. Um, so I thought I'd bring them together and and see what 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 could be done to to bring them um, together and to dialogue with one another. Those critiques with the libertarian socialist approach as well. Sounds fantastic. I can't wait to get on to talk about this kind of nexus between utopia, socialism and intersectionality in a little bit. But for our listeners um, who maybe haven't studied socialism in depth, I mean, when we're talking about libertarian socialism here, um, from my understanding, it's an extremely broad set of definitions and ideologies within libertarian socialism. And we've got um, infinite, we've got cooperativism, mutualism, anarchism, all these things. So are we talking about libertarian socialism in a very broad sense, or is there a specific form of libertarian socialism that you're referring to in this kind of, mm. uh, in your argument? It's a, a really good question. Yes. I mean, there's, there is a, a, a very, very broad field that is, I believe, um, a forgotten legacy, really, um, in, in some ways, um, of socialist thought in the UK or in England, at least. Um, I mean, um, when we think of socialism today, we often think of a strong state, uh, a state that supports people, a state that provides for people, a state that provides welfare, welfare, a very vibrant, solid welfare system. We often even refer to social democracy when we think of socialism, um, um, at least in the US, social democracy is regarded as socialism. Um, but. Um, a libertarian socialism is, is a really was a very vibrant um, school of thought within socialism um, since, well, um, in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, Robert Owen um, could be really was a key figure uh, for, in that movement, or at least if not a libertarian socialism, what could call it a paternalist socialism here, but, you know, the idea of creating something akin to what we know now as a cooperative, trying to kind of have a sort of system that doesn't rely on the state for welfare, but that allows people to organize together, cooperate with one another to support each other. Um, I mean, that is really uh, socialism from the bottom up rather from that from the top down. That's what I mean by libertarian socialism. So I would say that it's the I tried to adopt a, a fairly broad understanding of what libertarian socialism is. I drew quite significantly. Um, actually, I was going to draw a lot more, but things change as, as you do research and as you write, you get inspired in new ways. But um, I was going to draw on the work of GDH Call. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, um, um, a, a key figure in the Guild Socialist Movement, which was also a very um, prominent period of libertarian socialism in the, in the UK or in England at least. Um, so I was going to draw on his guild socialist stage because he's changed a bit and evolved a little bit. So um, the, the first half of his career, or at least first third of his academic career, he was a fervent guild socialist, a fervent critique, uh, a ferocious critique of the state, um, um, and um, a, very much an advocate of a stateless form of socialism. And um, so for him, it was really mainly about, um, he wouldn't call them cooperative, he was critical of cooperative movements, by the way, I'd like to point that out, which was at the time, predominantly consumer cooperative, move, uh, consumer cooperative movement, the wholesale, um, I think, company, um, the wholesale, I mean, I can't remember the exact term, but there was, there was a dominant kind of system of cooperatives, which were mainly consumer cooperatives at the time. He was quite critical of that, but for him, 
it was about associations, associations of producers and consumers in dialogue with one another. I draw a lot from his work for thinking about the allocation of resources or the system of allocation and resources in this intersectional socialist utopia that I'm formulating. Um, but I'll draw on the work of others too, and more than I actually thought. So yes, broadly speaking, I envision when I think of libertarian socialism, a socialism from the bottom up, um, where associations of producers and consumers, but associations of interest groups as well, like um, organized around gender, race, and the environment, um, in some ways negotiate with one another to allo allocate resources, um, but also to address a range of issues that are important for the organization of society. Now, this is very broad, this is very vague at this stage, but um, I am um, at this stage in my conversation with you, um, but I look into it in much more detail, of course, in the book. But I hope that that makes sense. It's, it's, it's quite a general understanding of liberty and socialism. I draw from this that my liberty and socialism, I mean, from the bottom up, um, I minimize the role of the state in some ways in my conceptualization um, and, and yeah, and, and draw quite significantly from GDH Gore, but also from others, such as the work of Divine, um, uh, who wrote a book in 1988, which was a, a brilliant book on economic democracy. Um, and comes up with the notion of negotiated coordination, um, which, is, which is, I think, a very inspiring way of thinking of the allocation of resources beyond socialism, um, beyond central command system, but also um, beyond market socialism. Mm -hmm. So if we're just going to be able to try and frame these theoretical ideas in terms of maybe some real world examples. We have a, we still have a very, fairly broad understanding of um, libertarian socialism, but are we talking, so would the examples of say um, Rojava or like Owenite communities or even just worker cooperatives that exist in this country, are these the kind of things that we're talking about? Yeah, in some ways, yes, but um, we're, we're talking about, um, let's just say a regime, right? So rather than just different experiments or different experiences or different or isolated, um, isolated, uh, yeah, experiences or experiments, if not experiments, isolated projects, um, what we find or initiatives, what we find in a libertarian socialist system is a sort of generalization of a particular model, a particular way of organizing. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that every single business will assume the form of a cooperative, um, that there could be some a degree of plurality. In fact, it really is important, I think, to, to, to kind of maybe anticipate a degree of pluralism or plurality, at least in, 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 in the sort of um, the institutions or the organizations that will exist for the simple reason that there might be you know, what needs to be maximized is freedom in some ways, right? Um, I mean, that's a really key element and trying to combine it with the value of equality and also another value but that's really important for socialists, the value of solidarity, right? So the, this, this, these three values are absolutely crucial, but the dominant model would certainly be, be a model um, based on cooperativism um, and, and the central system of allocation of resources will be a form of dialogical or negotiated coordination between associations of producers or consumers and interest groups. 
it's interesting. You mentioned freedom and equality and this kind of um this next this little nexus and relationship going on here because I mean earlier in earlier in the podcast you were talking about the Soviet Union, for example, as having some semblance of equality but negating and people's freedom. What does I mean, in the talk that you sent me, you were talking about freedom as a social aspect mm -hmm. of freedom rather than an individual freedom that we might have in, in our current society. What, how, what does it mean for freedom to be social and shared? Yeah, it's, it's really counterintuitive, isn't it, for us living in the capitalist society where freedom is highly individualized, right? And in fact, freedom is negative in some ways. I mean, anyone doing politics or at least some form of political theory will probably have encountered the work of Berlin who dis differentiates between freedom from and freedom for, or freedom to rather. Um, so I guess what we want is to move beyond this antinomy or this opposition between um, that Berlin identified and think of the fact that actually even under capitalism, despite the fact that we're accustomed to think that our freedom is individual and individualized, our freedom depends on others. I mean, this is so overlooked a lot of the time in our daily existence um, because we are led to think in many ways. And by saying we are led to think, we are accustomed to thinking that uh, I am responsible for my own fate. Uh, no one else is yet, I mean, the, 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 the links of dependence, I mean, the, 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 how to put it, we are the supports, the networks of dependence that we are in some ways enmeshed in or within um, are so um, massive. Um, and, and yet we believe that we are responsible for our own fate, that we are individually, that the freedom is something to be sought individually and to be realized individually. And yet we are really connected. I mean, students depending on teachers, teachers depending on students. I mean, that is a key example. Um, I, who do I depend on in order to be able to, um, you know, find means for my own subsistence? Well, shopkeepers in many ways, farmers. I mean, there are networks of dependence that are there everywhere and yet we are <laughs> we think that you know oh yeah i am free. so so all i'm all i'm saying by using the term social freedom in some ways here which i draw from the work of honeth his work on like the idea of socialism if anyone has read it or if anyone is um intending to read it after this what i would say is that there's a very narrow minded view of what socialism is in other words Honeth ignores quite a lot that's been done on socialism that he says doesn't exist, but actually does exist. So um, I would warn everyone uh, just now uh, that the, then there's a bit of a problem with his work, but he does make a good point about social freedom. Now, in the book that I'm writing, I actually chose to qualify this even further and I even chose a different terminology. I chose the term pro-reversal emancipation which is a bit of a mouthful, but um, anyone uh, familiar with pluriversality will probably be familiar with the idea that here freedom is understood as not as something that we do individually, but we do through that we realize through others. I mean, that, I mean, pluriversality 
um, and tells a different ontology, a different way of thinking about how it is that we exist in the world. We don't exist as atoms or as individuals, right? We inter-exist. Um, and it recognizes that inter-existence, this concept of pluriversality. So pluriversal emancipation is that emancipating oneself from structures of oppression by recognizing that we, that emancipation, and uh, my emancipation inter-exists with the emancipation of others, that the emancipation of class inter-exists with the emancipation of, um, of particular classes within the, with the emancipation of particular ethnic minorities or sexual minorities, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, no, I think I don't disdain the use of the word pluriverse at all. In my, in my work that we do on um, degrowth, it's flowing around all the time. But, um, and it's kind of a weird one because in kind of appreciating this pluriverse, and I mean, for me, libertarian socialism sounds like it goes hand in hand with some sort of decentralization as well. You know, this pluriverse is respecting that we live as part of the collective, but also respecting the alterity that in like communities of difference altogether. Is that the kind of thing that pluriverse is getting at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are many kind of facets to it. Um, one key facet is the, the, the notion of inter-existence, right? Uh, the other one is the, and it's, 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 it's one that um, I thought um, that, that is particularly hard to kind of discuss without engaging in a very detailed discussion. And it is this notion that we should stop thinking in terms of binary and especially the binary between particularism and universalism which is a binary that has made it very difficult for movements of resistance within the West to actually achieve something, which has been very counterproductive and in fact has been very much um, uh, at the service of the status quo, because it really is reflected in the, the binary or the opposition and tension between identity politics and class politics. Identity politics being regarded, seen as um, particularistic, and class politics as universalistic. Uh, I mean, you know, both are, you know, both are one and the other, right? Um, and, but, but, but it has, it has kind of, for some reason, come to assume this kind of binary because, um, you know, Western ways of, Western forms of thought, in fact, really impose binaries a lot of the time. And if you look at the work of Latin American scholars, um, if you try to decolonize socialism a little bit, and this is why I chose the term pluriversal emancipation, right? It's an attempt to decolonize socialism. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm really fully supporting this project of decolonization here. Um, by doing that, by looking at the work of Latin American scholars, or even you know, the work of people who have studied um, indigenous Amerindian um, communities, you find a very different way of thinking about the world. You find Amerindian cosmologies, for example. You find different ontologies. Um, I mean, Bruno Latour, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, he's a very prominent sociologist, um, has kind of revised in his own way or claims that he's come up with a new way of thinking about the social. And he says, what we need to do is to reassemble the social and to think of the social in terms of networks. There is no, humanity is not at the center. Humanity is part of a network. Um, objects in some ways, or the non-human, or what is now referred to as the more than human, has agency in many ways, whether it's the biophysical environment or whether it's computers, the non-human has agency too. It's not just human. 
but this kind of mode of thinking, this kind of rethinking about how it is that we exist in the world, um, what it is that, what has agency, what has free, what has capacity to make a difference to action. Well, that, that's been there in many communities across the world. And that is really kind of second nature to Latin American scholars, for example, or sociologists who think along those lines. But we have here in the West, Latour claiming that this is something quite new. And, right, so my point here, and I know I seem to kind of like go on a complete tangent here, I'm gonna try and bring it back to where we were. Um, the point I'm trying to make here is um, that when we think what we, what we need to think about um, here is a different way of relating to the world and relating to others when we think of pluriversal emancipation. It includes interexistence, but it includes also a sort of balance, a, a, a delicate, it, it overcomes the binary between particularism and universalism, which is, has been overcome in modes of thinking that are outside the West. And my point was that I tried to draw on those forms of thinking to be able to think beyond um, that, that, that binary. Um, and actually, yes, pluriversal emancipation is about the idea that we interexist, but also about the fact that as individuals, our own interests are inextricable from the interests of the community and vice versa, right? So it's, it's, this, it's, it's, it's this, this very, delicate balance between the individual and the collective or the communal and communal and the individual. It's overcoming particularism and universalism, but also the individual collective binary. Um, and it's a, it's a fascinating way, I think not just fascinating, but absolutely urgent way of thinking. Um, and, and one that has been around for quite a while um, in many forms outside the West. Uh, but that shares an affinity, I think, with, with some of, 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 of libertarian socialism's own orientations. Mm. I'm interested to hear you talk about um, like other beings having agency um, in the sense that um, what I've been kind of thinking about recently is that even the planet, planetary system itself has its own sort of agency in the terms that the, um, you know, the, um, our effect on the world is that we are effectively destroying it and there's come time, some kind of autopoiesis is going on in which the planet is self-regulating and getting it back to its original state prior to us. I mean, for me, it's kind of stemmed from the fact that we have these top-down solutions in which we believe that these huge overriding solutions to problems can be solved through top-down approaches to policymaking. And I guess that's part of libertarian socialism is that appreciating complexity in some way and suggesting that, you know, we don't have the solutions for all these wide ranging problems. And the only way that what is truly manageable is small communities, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, a part of the project, I think, in my view, and I share your view on this, of, of libertarian socialism is to decentralize decision making. Absolutely. And, 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 and decentralizing decision making uh, basically means equipping, empowering particular communities with uh, the capacity, with the means to make their own decisions and to control what's going on within their community and maybe even beyond those. Um, but yeah, so like that's beyond those by, you know, uh, ensuring that there's a system of representation that allows them to kind of represent their interest, not just regionally, uh, not just locally, but also regionally, and maybe potentially nationally. So we start from the bottom and go all the way up 
And that's what libertarian socialism believes in, a system of decentralized decision-making. I completely agree. And I mean, it's part, this, 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 this form of decentralization, there is a debate here though going happening. And this is something that I'm going to have to tackle in, in the chapter on internationalism. Um, because I, I do believe that um, it is absolutely important to have an internationalist project of libertarian socialism. Uh, the problem is that, of course, we know that decentralization is really key. Um, how, and we know that decentralization can be very good for um, you know, addressing environmental problems. But we also know that in some ways, and by, by the way, the decroissance or degrowth movement um, is very much a, a fervent advocate of this decentralized take. I think it's in the blueprint for survival by not an advocate of, of degrowth, but um, um, it's, in, it's, it's in the blueprint for survival that's been a really key environmentalist text um, and, and it, which advocates decentralization, but it has been criticized because some environmental problems and a lot of them in fact um, are not just local or localized. I mean, uh, how do you deal with air pollution? Um, you know, um, from a decentralized perspective, for example. So there's this issue to tackle, um, which I struggle to have an answer to before I really kind of delve into trying to address it myself, uh, you know, spending days trying to kind of, you know, uh, see what research has been done and, and trying to understand how, um, what, what different perspectives there might be and the different sides of the debate. But yes, decentralization for decision-making um, in the economy is really quite important. A particular type of representation, which um, some have called functional, including GDH called functional representation, rather than representative um, um, democracy, a functional form of democracy is also key. Again, it's been criticized quite a bit. And there's a debate, something one uh, I will look into personally, whenever I get to that point, but I have a sense that trying to find ways, sophisticated ways to start from the local all the way to the global um, is, is, really, is really one way forward. It's an absolutely massive task. Uh, one, you know, I mean, the book I'm writing is a utopia, right? It doesn't claim to have a blueprint for the way things are. And we can talk about utopia in a bit because, you know, I think it's important to clarify what is meant by utopia, but at least to cultivate a different way of thinking, you know, um, about how it is that we organize ourselves um, economically, but also politically, right? Yeah, yeah. I and just kind of one more thing on like the local and the international, yeah. if that's all right. I mean, because um, I'm a huge degrowther myself, but um, and I've been mainly doing this year trying to um, reach some sort of um, degrowth critique of international relations theory, which is kind of been all these questions about decentralization and also achieving some sort of transnational ethic has just been such a sticking point for me all year but I was wanting to ask you maybe if we kind of have to have this decentralization if we see that as necessary for democracy and for freedom and equality in the future does that mean that the means of production and our kind of the size of our society itself, like the size, the amount of goods that we produce, the kind of institutions that we have, do those have to meet the size of the kind of the collective in question? Or can we have mass society like we do now in the UK, but also have decentralization? Because that's for me the problem at the moment is the fact that you know we have democracy in this country, but 70 million people feel like they don't really have agency. So 
afterwards that require some kind of scaling down? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think this is a really, really important point. Um, it's, I think, becoming fairly clear that we can't, the problem is not necessarily whether the consumption of the goods, the, whether the goods we, co we consume are green or not, um, so, but how much we consume. Um, I think there is a debate, of course, and I think mainstream, yeah, I think I'll, 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 yeah, I'll say that mainstream approaches and the government's approach to environmentalism is that there can be such a thing as green capitalism. That basically is the same as saying we can carry on being as consumerist as we are, as long as what we consume is green, right? So let's have, uh, I don't know, uh, bamboo uh, socks. Um, let's have bamboo, uh, bamboo everything, right? Yeah, because it's sustainable. Apparently it's mostly, yeah, but there won't be any more bamboo left if everything's in bamboo, right? Okay, that's the bit of problem uh, really that we're faced with. So, so there, is, there is a bit of a, an irony, a paradox really. In, in, and in fact, I think there's a, you know, green capitalism is an oxymoron, really, a bit like sustainable de development. I mean, this is what Latouche says in Farewell, um, you know, um, to growth, I think. Is it farewell to growth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, he, he, he kind of says that sustainable development is not more. And I, and, I, and, I, and I totally agree with that. Um, I think we will, we, we have, we have to reduce our consumption levels. What does that mean? Changing our lifestyles quite significantly as well. Who's going to decide what lifestyles we have to change into? Uh, what kind of lifestyles? are going to be this, you know, environmentally friendly ones, you know, well, you know, I do think, I really do think that if we end up focusing on consumption for use, and actually, rather than having, for example, producers, as it were, or the capitalists, as we can call it, really, in a very Marxist sense, the owners of the means of production, those who decide, who go on Dragon's Den, who decide to start a business, right? Okay, those people, take risks, they are subjected to what Divine calls secondary uncertainty um, in many ways, and most of us are, and don't even know whether the risks they take are going to bear fruit, right? They don't even know if they're going to succeed yet, you know, you know, they don't know if capitalism will reward them or not. Um, but they really are quite determined to go out there and accumulate wealth and to sell. This notion, this a system driven by economic value creation of this kind has become a complete and utter fallacy. You know, I mean, it has, I mean, it's quite clear in the light of what we have been witnessing in terms of environmental problems. It cannot work. It cannot work. You know, whatever one says about the possibility potentially of making capitalism green, well, how long is that going to take first to make it fully green? And is it really? How can this logic, I mean, Andre Gortz compared the logic of economic rationality or distinguished or, you know, contrasted the logic of economic rationality from the logic of ecological rationality and said they're completely opposed to one another and that we should maximize the space or scope for ecological rationality, which is about uh, less is better rather than more is better in some ways, right? So um, very broadly, very crudely summarize this difference here but you know 
Um, so, so it, in my view, it, you know, you can't have really a green capitalist system. Um, what you, you can have potentially is um, a system of social value creation, I call it, you know, social value creation. So what, what, what producers and consumers together, what producers will look for is to create social value. That means a good that's going to be useful for consumers. You know, that's, 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 the, and, and based on, in some ways, what consumers say they think is useful, right? So that's, that's negotiated, co negotiated coordination. And I think that, that this system, in some ways, has the potential to be certainly more environmentally friendly than capitalism, because you wouldn't really have a, a, an economic rationality. You, can, you wouldn't have an economic value creation that would push the producers to produce more than it is actually useful for society. Well, I think we can draw draw a line under that. They've beautifully explained the critique of green growth. But um, before, quickly before we um, move on to talk about utopia, you mentioned briefly there Gore's distinction between economic and um, ecological rationality, and that kind of leads me to ask just um, the main critique I get when talking about decentralization, cooperativism, is the fact that our kind of system, capitalism, is based on this perception of human nature. This kind of um, perception of a social Darwinist view of how we interact with each other and that competition is pretty much embedded into our DNA. So, and I'm sure you have a scaling critique of this notion. Do you know what, Do you know what? Like, what, what, I, what I will say is we only need to look at the work of one of my colleagues, John Dupre, who's done some work showing that actually um, competition is not really what characterizes the survivals, what, what, what allows a particular species to survive. Actually, and, you know, I can't remember the name. Well, this is absolutely terrible, but it's in a great book. Can I, can you give me one second? Yeah, I'll, yeah. Pick up I'll pick up the book. Um, yeah. yeah, a great book. I mean, it's an inspiring book, I thought. Um, it, it is inspiring because it's beautifully written, and I think it's just, it, it's, it's less academic than one might expect from Tim Jackson. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, uh, but it's this post-growth text. I mean, he, he wrote a book called Prosperity Without Growth, which really launched, well, not didn't launch his career, he was, but, um, you know, he had already been very well established, but, you know, in a way, gave him a lot of exposure, gave his work a lot of exposure. Um, in, in, in this book, he does go and refer to a researcher, a female um, researcher who was forgotten and probably because she was a woman, um, who actually had demonstrated very compellingly that survival requires cooperation rather than competition, or that a species is more likely to survive if it cooperates with others rather than competes. So it's not even my, it's not a matter of developing a scathing critique of this notion. It's just that it's just untrue. <laughs> you know, it, it's like, 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 like it. Um, and if you look at um, the work of John Dupre, John Dupre reiterates this um, um, in, 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 in new ways um, in a lot of his work. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I. Um, the survival of the fittest, um, there is an element in there. I mean, I, I, I'm no expert in biology, um, but it's quite clear that conceptions of human nature are socially constructed in many ways. Um, what is important 
not to do is to be is to be incapable of deconstructing those constructions. We must be equipped with the means to deconstruct them. And I think Tim Jackson does a very good job at doing this in this book um, by revealing that actually there is a lot more to the survival um, of species, of beings, um, than competition. Interesting you say that it's socially constructed. I think people have this view that um, we are naturally competitive because they feel competitive because that's the conditions that they've been placed in, right? We exist within a capitalist system, which means that we are conditioned to be um, competitive from birth, which makes, and people feel that drive from within them because that's what they've learned. But you're saying that, say a change in conditions, this change would occur in the ways we interact with each other. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think there's no more, I mean, no, there probably are, but there's a very compelling example or illustration of this um, recent research by Sam Friedman and colleagues um, at the London School of Economics, you might, you might have come across this article in The Guardian, um, has shown that actually, despite the fact that some people who have, for example, inherited a lot of money, have grown, have grown in very wealthy families and have, you know, a very, are, are part of the elites now, despite the fact that they have had a life of privilege, they will still, they will still in some ways, uh, make sense of their life as um, in meritocratic terms. They will still say that they have worked hard and that's their hard work that got them to where they got. So that I found really quite interesting. Um, and upon reading this particular article, I thought I'd just discuss this with students next year, really, because I start the, the capitalism module that I mentioned earlier by discussing precisely this notion of co competition as part of human nature and even greed. Are we greedy by nature? But yes, sociologists and social scientists are really quite keen to show, and this is what I mean by deconstructing constructions of human, you know, of human nature, to show that the structures around us actually shape how it is that we see who we are. And if structures are going to be rewarding people who compete, if structures are going to be rewarding people who are adversarial, who are ruthless, um, then we're more likely to think that, you know, in some ways, we are ruthless by nature. Well, um, we'll talk about utopia a little bit because it's a word that um, whenever I try and explain my position, it eventually reverts back to me being called uh, a crazy utopian, basically. Um, and it's... Just ends, but people hear this word utopia and think unfeasible. But I think that's maybe a reductive way of um, looking at it. Because in your um, in the paper you sent me, you talk about utopia as methods, maybe rather than like a concrete yeah. destination yeah. that we want to go to, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so basically, there's there is what has been referred to as a new utopianism, um, which um, and I think a key figure in that particular. Um, type of utopianism is Ruth Levitas, who sadly retired, um, and I don't think will be writing any more work, but uh, her work um, um, is absolutely incredible. Um, I find it incredibly inspiring. Uh, it's powerfully written. Um, it's 
always incredibly convincing, whatever work she does. I mean, I, I've read not all her work, but a lot of what she's written. is, And it's not all about utopianism necessarily, but uh, she analyzed, for example, the new labor discourse. And it was really a fascinating analysis of it. Anyway, I've learned a lot reading her work. And um, I must admit that it's a colleague of mine and friend called Matt Dawson that introduced me to her work. Um, um, and uh, he, 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 he was very much inspired by her too. And, you know, that led me to kind of look into it. So what is this um, new utopianism? I mean, what, what is Ruth Levitas take on utopia first? Well, it's according to her, a method. And by this, she wants to use it as a method to contrast it with a blueprint. Now, there has been a tendency for many utopians to regard what the, their utopia as a sort of model um, on which reality has to be molded, right? Or around which, on the basis of which reality has to be molded. Now, she doesn't think that utopia of that form is a productive or constructive endeavor. She thinks that actually we should regard utopia as uh, a sort of force that cultivates the desire for change. So a method, it's a method for change, right? That's it's just, it's just, it's just a, basically an instrument, as it were, um, an instrument for social transformation rather than the goal of social transformation. So when one writes a utopian libertarian socialism and calls, when I call it you know, intersectional socialism, a utopia. Actually, I'm never, I'm not suggesting that this is the way things should be. I'm saying, look, if we think of intersectionality as a critique, we can think of it also as a potential utopia. There is a utopian content. I, I do try to expose that utopian content. I try to make a case for the fact that there's something utopian in it. But by doing that, I just want to start a dialogue on what things could be like, on what alternatives to capitalism could be like. I don't want to say this is what I think should be like. No, that's, that's, that's the old utopianism. This, what I'm trying to kind of do is, okay, developing a critique of systems of oppression, of structures of oppression, and showing how they intersect is super important. It's absolutely key. Shall we start a discussion or shall we have a discussion? Um, and I, and there, are, there have been discussions, but I just want to kind of bring my own kind of contribution into it by suggesting, well, what about things being that way? Could they be that way potentially? Let's, let's chat, let's see. I mean, do you agree? What, what, what would you think? So it's basically, and ah, oh, I don't know, there's a quotation in the talk that I've given you, which is beautiful, by Miguel Abensur. And uh, he actually explains in that talk, um, in, that, in that quotation, what it means to cultivate desire. He wrote a really beautiful chapter on William Morris's work, um, which he said was a work of educating desire for change. It's about educating desire for change. That's what utopia is about, uh, or at least the new utopianism. It's not just a goal, an ultimate, an end point, a blueprint. No, no, it's about saying, look, society is this, but who is to say that it can't be this way? And it's about denaturalizing what we consider to be natural. It's about turning, well, the familiar 
into the strange. That's what really this utopia as method and broadly speaking, the new utopianism is mainly about. Mm. So interesting to say that um, this utopia isn't like some kind of end point. It's not like a end of history kind of argument going on here because my worry with like utopian thinking initially was like, and especially like anarchist thinking is that say in some parallel universe, some sort of anarchist utopia does appear. And, um, but once that has been reached, we kind of abandon those um, structures of deliberation and eventually it reverts back into authoritarianism. So are we saying that this is that this utopia is not a kind of end of history argument? Is it something that can be constantly developing? Uh, yeah, it's saying that it's basically saying that actually a, the, the utopia one formulates or utopia one proposes is just bound to fail. It's basically um, it's not it's it's never like well, the world if it's going to change it's never going to be like that. It's just a motor, a driving force for change. So it could be a sort of guide, but it's not certainly an end point. And it certainly also means, and I completely, I mean, this is something that's so important and really gets mentioned so little, that once things have started to change, we need to make sure that we cultivate um, continuously um, dissent, um, um, right? That, that dissent isn't suppressed, that uh, there is not, uh, basically, I mean, to use Adorno and Horkheimer's terminology, that the dialectic continues its work, right? So we still have, you know, an opposition because that's the only way for things to be better. And, and you know, you just have to read again Miguel Abenso's work, who actually connects the dialectic of enlightenment with utopia, saying that utopianism is really about. Sorry, that might be me. You, you no I, I, I hate <laughs> I hate that. I absolutely hate that when you know I hear it on others and I and I, and I manage to do that. Um, anyway, um, so, so so utopianism injects movement where things have become crystallized, right? Um, so so it what it does is basically kind of ensures that things, that ideas, um, beliefs do not become myths, as Adorno and Horkheimer put it. That is, um, forces high and above us that exerts a sort of repressive force on us. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we, one more thing when we're talking about utopias, if, can we have both at the same time? Can, can we have these kind of real existing utopias? And what, do, can those work in conjunction with this kind of, these kind of imaginary utopias as well? Like we have like the ONI communities, which you might be able to briefly explain um, what they were before answering. But um, can we have those and this kind of imaginary utopia, or is or are they mutually exclusive? Um, so, Robert, I'm no expert on the on on Robert Owen's own communities. Robert Owen, though, um, what I'm familiar with is broadly speaking his own take on how it is that things should be organised. And in fact, one has to really um, emphasise the fact that Owen did not really create or did not really. Uh, wasn't instrumental in shaping um, economic relations in what we see as um, cooperatives or worker cooperatives today, because there was a degree of paternalism in them. In other words, it wasn't really self-government as such, um, or not full-blown self-government. 
there was um, certainly an attempt to um, stimulate um, to yeah stimulate solidarity to kind of create um, networks of solidarity between workers for sure that's that's quite clear and that it wasn't about competition and it was mainly about cooperation um, but there was a degree of paternalism um, whereby it was thought that in some ways and that, that's my interpretation you know broad interpretation of my very kind of limited expertise on on his on experiments but that in some ways workers would change their character by working together and that he was instrumental in some ways in changing their character right so, so that, i mean you know that, that there's an element of that in there but you have certainly experiments worker cooperatives that are not necessarily of an overnight nature today and you have them in the uk you have um a, a, a a UK cooperative movement. Um, you have a site, a website on which you can actually see where the cooperatives all are. Um, there are different types of cooperatives. Um, you have worker managed, worker owned and managed. You have, um, you know, a much, a much more diluted cooperative form like John Lewis in some ways that relies on a sort of trust. Um, or the kind of sharing of dividends on some ways to workers, although recently they've not really had much of those because John Lewis hasn't been doing very well. Um, and consultation of workers as well within John Lewis. Um, but you have also uh, basically a range of projects and initiatives, experiments one could call as well, across the UK and across the world north and south that do not replicate fully the competitive self-interested individualist ethos of um, a strictly or conventional capitalist enterprise um, and you have in fact different types of ownership within the uk and across the world you have national ownership or state ownership or public ownership you have common forms of property or common ownership where which someone called, which is a sort of collective private property or collective private ownership. Worker cooperatives are a bit like that. Um, you also have municipal ownership, municipally led ownerships. Um, and you have, of course, the private ownership model. So you have those across the world. Um, and you have, and sorry, I, I, I rant a lot today, but you know, those questions are, you know, quite, um, you know, um, really interesting. Um, you have also, as the digital economy has shown, new forms of ownership, which is to start actually devising, saying, well, that we, we could have really a dominant property you know, exist in some kinds. We could have an allocation and of this is particularly of this um, I mean, there's, and then you end up combining a real P2P, P2P foundation, which is combining many strategies, foundation, which is an attempt to, in so some I think ways, there is work uh, there to bring together combine different experiments, even sometimes including worker cooperatives to work together on creating an alternative. 
economic in terms of system. we talked a lot about crops um, i mean so i'm making an assumption here one says that, wrong, but um you know your question in where, this kind of in the kind of libertarian socialism we're talking about here it seems very cooperative led got. which is in and um, most cooperatives that currently exist besides real like utopia i mean you said there could be a tension between real utopia well what we've got here is an attempt to maybe bring different real which is the term that eric used to kind of refer to and yeah so other cooperatives are um, workplaces, right? So they're like economic arrangements, they're stimulating economic activity. If we're talking about speaking, so to bring the margin into the center libertarian socialism, and to try and devise ways of how are we getting these kind of different but forms there are, of liberation, there is a of forms in racial there. liberation, but racial justice, climate course, justice? You're now faced with the, how are we getting those with, from when okay, so this how libertarian guide this what are the methods we're using apart uh, should, from this should a particular model really so dominate it all um, and this is where the role of utopianism actually not real utopians i'm going to try and imagine utopians right because it's likely to to i'm likely to do kind of circles and circles and but what i'm gonna say about this is that um it's taken me some time to deploy this is the the, the way i put it um the logic of intersectionality to reformulate um or to to kind of formulate uh, an intersectional socialist utopia and i decided to do it in a specific way which was to look at different forms of oppression and um i look at the oppression of indigenous communities i look at the oppression of um class or you know, class oppression, uh, patriarchal oppression, um, oppression of particular sexual minorities, but also um, disability, um, oppressions of disabled people. Um, and I try to understand and grapple with here how it is that I could shift the standpoint of analysis of the economy or how I can conceptualize an economy from different standpoints. What lesson do, can one learn from looking at the experiences of, for example, disabled people as discussed by critical disability scholars? How is it that we might actually formulate a work, uh, conceptualize work in an intersectional socialist utopia that in some ways does recognizes or accommodates the demands of criti critical disability scholars. How can we accommodate the demands of environmentalists in a new conception of work? How can we accommodate? So I, I basically, I, this is the term I use, the, the, I shift the epistemic gaze, right? To kind of conceptualize. And I try to understand how it is that at the intersection of all this standpoints, we might come up with a particular conceptualization of work, um, of property, uh, of, you know, so yes, I'm, I'm thinking about economic life. I'm also thinking about, by the way, political life and what I would call everyday life too in the book. Um, I've just finished the economic side of things, but it's, although it's looking at the economy, I look at it at the intersection of different standpoints um standpoints of oppression all right well um just wanted to ask one quick thing before um i think that's kind of everything i really wanted to talk about i don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about but one thing one more question that i had was um slightly unrelated kind of diverging a little bit but um i was wondering what your whether you had any takes on um 
conceptualizing violence in kind of libertarian socialism in decentralized societies especially especially when we have more autonomous communities um that are engaging in some sort of direct democracy where in which like popular will is exercising sovereignty over these communities how in if you have an opinion on this how are we to kind of have some sort of protection for minorities for women and for um just um men as well in these societies how are we able to kind of ensure security in these kind of in these kinds of places or will we or will the fact that we still delegate responsibility to some sort of higher authority say a national police force that that still exists I mean, in terms of the kind of decentralization we're talking about do you know what i mean this is something i've not really kind of um delved into yet it's it's an issue that i will look at when i look at the political life really um because it's it's a it, it's a political issue, or at least an issue that is associated with the state today. But um, since there will be a very minimal state in the intersectional socialist world, there, there is a minimal state in that utopia. Um, I think what the way security, and I think it's been shown that there are experiments, again, one really should partly draw at least on experiments on what's been done already in the world and what might work. What might work in terms of you know um, freedom uh, what could maximize the freedom but to, what could empower people um to actually in some ways um deal or address the problem of security and violence um and i think community-based forms of policing um uh, in some ways would be the kind of potential way forward what exactly that looks like I could not tell you just yet, but I know that if we are going to think of decentralized, a decentralized system of decision making, um, we have to think of whatever could interfere with the democratic character of that. And of course, we need to make sure that any sort of policing is as democratically organized as possible. And the best way to do that is to make it community-based in some ways and um, that's that would be my view um at this stage and i'm sorry if i can't really kind of go into more detail jack no that's fine um i have one more question um it's more of a practical question um to any budding libertarian socialist or even anyone who's just purely interested firstly what practical steps can the individual or the community take to kind of engaging in decentralization and are there any particular resources uh, like one or two books that you would say are introductory texts this kind of thing yeah i mean I, I tell you what there's loads and there's been so much and so much more than you think um now i don't have any sort of i'm, I'm afraid to say i don't have any lessons to give to anyone about how it is that one ought to start what I can do, however, is point towards what's been done already, right? And what's been done is so massive and lies beneath the surface um, of, you know, what we see as mainstream or conventional economic forms. I mean, I mentioned, for example, the P2P Foundation. What I would do is to kind of join particular movements of various forms and there's a lot of them at the moment, whether they are really uh, socialist in name or not, but there's a lot of movements. And um, there's a list that I had, actually, actually I have it here. I've got, I've got some particular examples of things you can actually look at. Um, there's a movement that um, 
um, Yanis Varoufakis is part of called Progressive International, for example, another movement called Global Tapestry of Alternatives, or even another movement called Multi-Convergence of Global Networks. I mean, these different movements, I call them movements because they are driven by particular values, but they are aiming actually to, and you can have the P2P Foundation as well, aiming to, in some ways, turn different experiments into a cohesive whole, but, um, and it's especially the case of global tapestry of alternatives without kind of imposing one particular model over others. Um, it's the global tapestry of alternatives is really um, pluriversality um, turned into a movement in some ways. I would see it that, that, that way. Um, it's, it, there's, there's a strong emphasis on decolonization, but also a strong emphasis on drawing on the experiences um, and drawing on the particular worldviews and forms of knowledge of indigenous communities across the world, um, but bringing different knowledge projects and resistance projects um, together and trying to kind of having different worlds fitting next to one another, which is what really pluriversality or pluriversalism is about. So there's a lot, uh, what I would say is kind of, you know, I mean, in terms of um, fairly straightforward and easy thing to do for now is to kind of join those movement. Um, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of what's going on is online in those movements. So you can very easily attend what's, you know, the talks and register and, and they're fascinating. In terms of concrete action, um, it's, it's, this is something I get asked a lot. Um, I'm an academic and I work in um, a really, well, an increasingly privatized institution, uh, higher education system. Um, I'm a living contradiction because, you know, um, in some ways I believe in liberty and socialism and yet I just, I signed a contract agreeing to work for, you know, um, you know, an, uh, what is what one could regard a business, a corporate, you know, a corporation. But it's difficult not to be a contradiction, um, really, when you believe something, but you live in a world that is completely opposed to your beliefs, right? It's difficult not to be a, a living contradiction, a breathing contradiction. Um, but I always say that, you know, it, socialism does not really always have to be a utopia, does not always have to be something one writes or speaks about, but something what does on a daily basis um, in one's relation with others whether they are friends or people you don't know and um, socialism is that's that's praxis for you it's connecting theory with practice even in doing that we often vary we can be contradictory but it's potentially limiting those contradictions maybe that um you know one can become truly socialist i guess or at least as socialist as possible but yeah it's the everyday i think that really really matters that for the now um since that was your question but yeah and joining those particular movements as well. And by joining, I mean, just, you know, listening to what's going on and maybe participating. And in terms of a like introductory text that people might be able to look at? Sorry, yes, of course, okay. <laughs> of course, of course, of course, of course, of course, thanks. Um, do you know what, like, uh, uh, so I don't know if they're introductory necessarily, but um, a text that I found incredibly, incredibly inspiring that changed my life along with Marx is GDH calls guilt socialism restated. 
Um, so that was published at the beginning of the 20th century. It's called Gids Socialism Restated. It's very accessible. It's just written. It's so lucid. It's so it it it, it makes so much sense. It's so human. There's a soul in that particular alternative that he proposes and a passion for humanity as well. I, I, I could not, I mean, you know, I could not rate this work any more highly than I have just rated it. Um, uh, and another one, do you know what? Another one that I actually, that I found inspiring, but more recently, because I mean, the work of Cole was an inspiration when I was a student as an academic. I read fairly recently the work of Silvia Federici called The Caliban and the Witch. And um, that is for me um, probably one of the best works written in the 21st century so far. Um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive source of inspiration and a great way to apply the intersectional lens to the study of oppression. All right, well. I think that will probably do, Charles. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been it's been great. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been an absolute joy. You take care, Jack. Thanks, Charles.